0: welcome to Bible Truth Feeder podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. The Bible was the first book ever printed. It continues to be the best-selling and most translated book in the world. It can explain such mysteries as the existence of a multitude of languages with no traceable common source, the spiritual capacity of humans, and the challenges of human childbirth when compared with the animal kingdom. It can account for the survival of the Jewish people and their return to a land that had been desolate for millennia, but which is now thriving and productive. It is the word of God and its message has been miraculously preserved down throughout the generations. It has great transformative powers if it is read and meditated upon. We live in a society where interest in the Bible is waning. Join us now as we look at some of the reasons why you should read the Bible. The miracle of the Jews, the impossibility of evolution, and the way in which the Bible can be physically affecting your brain are just some of the reasons to read it.
1: Chris Adelphians. We're extremely passionate about God's word. We believe that it is a guide, not just to God's purpose with the earth, but also a guide to how we should live our lives. And it directs our thinking and can change us as people with the ultimate aim that essentially we become more Christ-like as people um, to follow the example of Jesus Christ, God's son. I'm going to look at the Bible from six different aspects this afternoon. You can see them listed on the slide and uh, we'll take them in turn. The first one being the Bible as a publication. And these are simply just just a few uh, of a few areas where when we think about what the Bible says um, and we look at how these these subject matters are understood in society, that we'd suggest it gives us something to think about. First, the Bible as a publication. The Bible was the first book ever to be printed. The Bible is the oldest book in terms of the number of sources of information that we have that provide veracity to the fact that the scriptures are as old um, as they say they are. And when the printed press came into being in the 15th century, the mid 15th century, it's important to reflect on the fact that whilst the year 1455, Which was the year that the first printed book was ever printed seems a long time ago in the year 2022 Uh, it was almost 1500 years since the birth of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is central to Bible teaching it's central to the story that's contained in the Bible of God's unfolding purpose with this earth so Whilst it seems a long time ago, 1500 years there or thereabouts, is also a long time and it's important to understand that when the first book, so printing was a seismic shift in society, just as the technological shift that we've seen culturally has had such a profound impact in the last 20 years and will continue to grow. So it was that before the 15th century, access to information in an easy way wasn't possible. It wasn't possible. Uh, And books were the medium or were to become the medium um, by which people would be able to understand things because they would all be able to read the same thing uh, and then a shared message could be uh, given more easily. And there was no discussion, no debate at all when at 1455, this massive moment in society when people were about to be able to read things en masse. It didn't require manual copying out by hand any longer. There was no discussion about which book should be published first. The Bible was going to be printed first. In fact, the print in the printing industry came into being as one of the reasons being that the the Bible could be more easily distributed. And so it's important for us to recognise that historically, this book, uh, even though it was such a long time after Jesus Christ, was in the year 1455 seen as so far more important than anything else that that was what society deemed had to be printed first and it was called the Gutenberg Bible. Now the Bible's history in society as a publication is unique and it's very interesting, particularly when we look at it today in in the current time or actually a lot of these slides are um, just before um, the pandemic hit because uh, data has been harder to come by um, because of the impact of the pandemic on some of these themes. So a lot of the data that we're looking at is from sort of 2017 to 2019, as we'll see. So this is taken from the Pew Research Centre in 2017. And, and what I want to just to be clear about is that the Bible is by far and away the most important publication today in, in terms of how it's published. But you have to contextualise that against two important facts. And the first is that people's interest in participating in, religious, in religion is in, is in terminal decline, it appears. Looking at the way that um, religion has trended, Christianity I'm talking here, in Western countries, particularly since World War II, uh, has been really profound a profound shift and so the last time this was taken and the figures sort of move more to the right every time we th- these um this survey is taken and you can see on the right hand side the religiously unaffiliated so this excludes um the, the religiously unaffiliated you can see there is what for the uk at 23 percent um, non-practicing christians 55 percent and those that attend a religious service, 18%. And every time, as I say, this is taken, the proportion of religiously unaffiliated gets increases, the proportion of non-practicing Christians increases, uh, and the proportion of church-attending Christians decreases. A smaller and smaller amount of people are interested in these things. Now, non-practicing Christians is, is, is truly nominal. It's people who observe Christmas or Easter, um, but never attend a place of worship. In fact, to be a church attending Christian, uh, to tick that box, you had to be somebody that attended at least one service a month. So even in that, there would be a significant range in terms of dedication. So we note that the Bible this historically important publication that the first book ever brought into print because it was deemed as indispensable, uh, we can see that, and we know that um, there is a declining interest in religion in Western culture in particular. And that goes hand in hand with this slide, which is, um, and and this is done every seven years, this, um, by Gallup, so the last one should have been 2021, um, but uh, obviously that didn't take place because of the pandemic, so it should be taking place at some point this year. Uh, And if people are not attending churches often, and they're not as interested, it's to be expected that there would be a declining level of knowledge. And understanding of what the Bible is all about is is again in significant decline. It's really deteriorating in terms of how much understanding people have of it. And so when you try and talk to somebody that doesn't know a lot about the Bible, or or rather the average person on the street, the likelihood is they'll know almost nothing about it. And that slide um, is drawing out that some of the most basic stories in the Bible weren't understood um, by a significant proportion. You can also see there in the bottom right-hand corner of this slide, where it says, engage with Bible stories at school. This tells its own story in that when this last cut of the survey was taken in 2014, 79% of parents aged over 55 in 2014 had engaged with Bible stories at school, whereas only 56% of parents aged 25 to 34 had. And I'm very confident to assert that in the next iteration of this, those figures, um, generationally speaking, will be even more clear that that fewer and fewer parents raising children today, young children, children, that they'll have very little understanding of the bible so that that sort of all makes sense at, at one point in time the bible was seen as a very important thing but today declining attendance and declining knowledge however god's word is never going to be a thing that disappears and and, and it's juxtaposed by some really quite extraordinary statistics so when you look at this and this was taken from newsweek uh, in 2019 and in news newsweek um is one of the world's most published magazines, and it's a serious magazine as well. They published the top 10 most read books in the world over a 50 year period to the year 2019. So that's 1969 to 2019. And this isn't looking at um, number of books printed this is looking at the number of books sold, because sometimes there can be a significant dif- differential, can't there, between those two things. So this is a number of copies of actual books sold. I find it really interesting, and I don't know why the Quran isn't in there. I would have expected it to be, but it's not. Um, but you can see that, that most of those are popular titles. This, the second most popular that sold 820 million copies over the 50 year period, is um, effectively the the Chinese communist handbook. Um, But you can see the impact of the Bible. 3.9 billion copies sold between 1969 and 2019. Uh, And and then, you know, Harry Potter, which we know has been so phenomenally popular in the last 20 years, Um, 400 million copies Um, and so you can see that's broadly 10 times fewer than the holy bible and then there's all those other titles that we'll probably recognize as well so we it's important to sit up and notice that as a fact that the bible is by far and away the best-selling book in the world number of copies sold even though in the countries such as ours that we live there's declining knowledge and declining interest in reading it. And that's only likely to continue, you know, that trend in terms of sales, because the effort, the work that is currently undergoing to continue to translate the Bible into new languages um, is a very active thing. It's a growing thing. It's not in decline. And so you can see these statistics from into again in 2019 one thousand five hundred and forty eight languages have the complete New Testament. And you can see those are the figures there. But notice the bottom one. Two thousand six hundred and seventeen languages have active translation work. So, whilst people aren't as interested in the Bible in their lives in general, the intent to spread this book, the Bible, to the four corners of the earth is, is a project that is ongoing. And so it's very much a living and relevant book in that sense. It's the most popular book in the world. And so it's important to think, well, why? And if you're somebody that has never read the most popular book in the world today, the first book that was ever printed because it was the most important book back then, then, as Christa Delphine's, we'd strongly suggest that pick it up and have a read and use the the brain that you have, that such... A capable organ to try and understand what it's talking about now the second thing that we want to look at is Israel Israel um of course are a a very prominent nation in the earth really considering their size Uh, and the book is in many ways um God's history um of the nation of Israel and how that was developed because Israel play a central role in God's purpose and in Isaiah chapter 43 they are termed his witnesses and we can see that the Bible attributes certain characteristics to the Jews to to Israel to help us in understanding partly how God communicates with us about his prophecy his his plan with this earth and so as i 43 verse 10 says you're my witnesses says the lord i've chosen you deuteronomy 38 says you will become an astonishment a proverb a byword among all nations um, whither the lord shall lead thee and that became true you know the jew became synonymous for many 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 centuries even if it's not so much the case today because israel is once more a nation in the earth was the phrase the wandering jew Because the Jew wandered from country to country, fulfilling the words of Jesus Christ, who said that the Jews at his time would be dispersed into all four corners of the earth. And and that's exactly what history tells us has happened. And and the Jews are their role, their controversial role in society is 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 not paralleled or equal by any other nation, I would suggest considering the longevity of the people but we're told a couple of things because what god tells us about the jews is that they will be a sign a witness as he works out his purpose with the earth and he says firstly he says in verse 62 of deuteronomy 28 that when you're um, spread over the earth he said he says you will be left few in number whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude because thou wouldest not obey the voice of the Lord thy God, and the Lord shall scatter thee among all people. So whilst we know historically that happened, it's interesting that the Jews have always been left, very few in number. Consistent, but few in number. The the natural thing for any peoples is to increase through um, procreation and so forth. But for the Jews... I know that's a complicated graph to read and I uh, um, apologize for that Um, but if you look if you if you look and follow the red line for example you'll see that apart from um, a little spike around the time that Jesus was born the population of the Jews has remained very static and and this was an old population you know just as you had Countries like Egypt and, and China, of course, which you know goes back that far. Well, China, of course, now is, is massive in terms of its numbers of people. But for the Jews, it stayed very, very small until we come to this century, uh, or rather the twentieth century. And we were told in the Bible that the Jews will remain few in number um, until the Jewish nation is set up again. And we can see that the Jewish nation exists and. There has been an increase in number, notwithstanding the the terrible cull of the Jews in World War Two. So the Jews would remain few in number. But also we're told that as the Jews are separated throughout the earth, the land of, of Israel itself would also tell its own story. And so we're told there in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 32, I will bring the land into desolation, says God. Your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it because it will be arid, it will be dry, it won't bring forth fruit from the ground, it won't be productive or profitable land. And I've got a quote there from Mark Twain's book, The Innocents Abroad, and there's, there's a number of explorers who've commented on the fact that the land of Israel is, is dismal. Um, and we, we can read that quote there. So it's come to pass all of that time but again um we're told that when the children of israel come back into the land or rather the nation of israel is established and we get closer to christ's return just as they become more populated so the land will also come back to life and and that remarkably has happened since 1948 or rather rather from the start of the movement of zionism in the 19th century And so this land that was desolate, says Ezekiel 36, is become like the Garden of Eden. And Ezekiel is a pretty chronological book in the way that it talks about the children of Israel coming back to the land and then events potentially with what we're seeing at Russia, with Russia at the moment, um, leading to Jesus's direct return to the earth. Anyway, we've got this interesting information here from the International Embassy in Jerusalem in 2019. And this is a staggering thing. Um, because, and I've been to Israel myself, uh, but you can literally be driving through the deserts and there's greenery that, 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 um, that rises up out of nowhere and the land of Israel is becoming much more productive in terms of its food, um, its fruit, its, um, and water as well. So we'll read this. Israel is also leading the way in agricultural innovations and water conservation, says the International Embassy in 2019. It pioneered drip irrigation and currently recycles 80% of wastewater, far outstripping any other nation. Although half of its land is still arid desert, which is less than it was, Israel exports high quality farm produce in all seasons. And so we understand that point, that even though half of its land is still desert, Israel is a net exporter. It exports farm produce in all seasons, but then the nations that surround it, because it's the same kind of territory, they need to import food to feed their populations. So it's been a remarkable change in the last 50 years, but, but sort of maybe covering a hundred year period. It would also surprise many to learn that the israeli people are blessed with one of the most nutritious food supplies in the world again you wouldn't think that because half of the land is desert israel ranked in a global survey by bloomberg uh, in in the world's healthiest countries israel ranked sixth and then it compares with the united states at number 33 so and and this is new this is recent the the arabs that inherited the, the lived in the land before when the land was called palestine had no joy whatsoever with the land of israel they couldn't grow anything in it and then it makes the point in the last paragraph that the land of israel wasn't always so fruitful the jewish people were not known for having a green thumb in fact the land lay desolate for all the centuries of jewish exile which which fulfills bible prophecy And in both Christian and Muslim lands where the Jews were dispersed, they were largely forbidden from owning land. This meant they basically lost the ability to farm and had to rely on the Gentiles to feed themselves. This was true even up to some 100 years ago when Jews first began to return to Eretz or that's Hebrew for the land of Israel and try to scratch out a living in the barren fields so remarkable transformation so reason number two aside from the miracle of the bible itself the jews as god's witnesses have remained few in number the land of israel has been desolate but both of those factors are beginning to change with the kingdom of god drawing nigh childbirth is an interesting one so in genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 god provides a promise he provides a promise between effectively a spiritual seed and a sinful seed although everyone sins he draws a distinction between those that will permanently be sinners and those that will follow his way and as part of that he says in genesis 3 verse 16 unto the woman he said i will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband he shall rule over thee And then Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, notwithstanding, the woman shall be saved in childbearing. And the point that Paul is making is that through the act of bringing forth a child, a woman would come who would bring forth a child called Jesus and salvation would come from the event of childbearing. But giving birth is not something to be taken for granted if you're a human. as Genesis chapter three, verse 16 says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. It's very unusual for mammals, which humans are, it's very unusual for mammals to have a monthly cycle. It's not seen in the animal kingdom in that way. It's often an annual thing. Um, But for woman, as we know, she experiences that, that monthly cycle And giving birth is not something to take for granted in the sense of it's not something that just happens. It's something that has to be prepared for. You know, it requires, you know, hospital um, admission. And, And if not that, then a very closely protected home birth. It's not something that you just get on with on your own. But it's not that case with the animal kingdom. And what we learn from this is that the challenge of childbearing was part of the curse. It was something that God gave as a consequence for the original sin that took place in the Garden of Eden, where the problem was incepted and people weren't just going to follow God um, because he told them to. And also God wasn't just going to enforce people to follow him. They had to desire to follow him. Childbearing became part of that curse. It was the means by which salvation would be provided. And every time a child is born, it reminds that sin is the worst disease because a child is brought through in pain. You know, when when the woman gives birth, she's not smiling and laughing and taking things easy and focusing on the beauty of what she's engaged with. She's in tribulation, bringing forth that child. And it's not something she wants to last a second longer than it needs to. Every time a child is brought forth as well, because there can be sad consequences, it reminds of the gift of life, that life is not something to be taken for granted. And the fact that we have life should make us be thankful for it and spend our time searching out our creator. That's what the Bible encourages. And women giving birth has been a problem over the centuries. It's what's termed the obstetrical dilemma. And it's essentially, it's essentially as simple as the following. It, it's the case that, um, or rather it's the tension between a scientist of thought in the context of evolution, the question has always been, well, why is it so difficult for women to give birth? When animals can seemingly give birth so much more easily, why is it so hard for a woman? And what's been asserted over the centuries is that the width of a woman's hips to be able to perform the dual function of both being able to pass a baby through and enable the woman to stand upright and walk on two legs means that the woman's um that the woman's hip width is is of an optimal measurement But interestingly, very recently, that's been proven not to be the case. In some work that's been undertaken at Harvard University, um, they've been able to be clear that wide hips, or it, it doesn't matter how wide hips are, this is essentially what's been concluded. Hips can be as wide as you want and it will not affect locomotion, the ability to walk. And so we've got it on the screen there, the challenge of bringing forth a baby, compared to the challenge that animals relatively face, where animals come out and very, very quickly, they're able to be independent. For a human child, of all of the the different lives in creation, humans are the most vulnerable when they're born and for the longest period. It's a long time until humans can look after themselves successfully. The reason for that is that unlike the animals, which are able to get on with their lives of feeding and all the rest of it, God is very clear that children need to be nurtured and raised with an understanding of God's truth. And that's something that has to be taught and imparted. And it takes time. And so humans are very, very vulnerable when they're born and it's been a real challenge for evolutionists over the century because if human beings are um advanced in terms of their development evolutionary speaking then the fact that humans are so vulnerable for so long is difficult to square against that hypothesis and so reading here um I'll, I'll just read uh, through the, the beauty of human reproduction, pregnancy and bringing a new life into the world is often termed a miracle. And it is. But childbirth is risky, painful and even deadly matter. As Colin Barras wrote in a BBC article, the real reasons why childbirth is so painful and dangerous. And this was being explored um, in a scientific magazine. And it, it, I'll read what it says there. The World Health Organization estimates about 830 women die every day uh, this is from 2019 every day because of complications during pregnancy and childbirth if you think about that 830 and then we're told that that itself is a 44% reduction on 1990 and then you keep taking it further back to the early 20th century and the numbers are through the roof it's a lot of people dying in the act of giving birth and uh, Jonathan Wells who Um, studies child nutrition in uh, UCL, uh, University in London. He says, the figures are just horrifying. It's extremely rare for mammalian mothers to pay such a high price for offspring production. And uh, it impacts so many people. And the article concludes by saying, that's not to mention the untold numbers of children lost during pregnancy and childbirth. From an evolutionary perspective, those numbers are just not normal why for humans is pregnancy and childbirth so difficult and the bible tells us it's part of god's promise it's a condition of his promise of how life and godly life will ultimately be achieved in this earth but childbirth is there as that reminder um, that it would be done in sorrow and her conception would be multiplied so moving on, because of time, I'm just checking the time. Uh, I've got here the concluding words of um, of, a, of a thesis that was published at Harvard University, which has been responsible for the changing views of what we've been talking about, the obstetrical dilemma. And what it concludes is that they don't know why humans are constructed the way they are or women are constructed the way they are because there's just no need for the width of the hips to be limited as it is particularly when it's so hard to pass through a, a human child and so it concludes by saying what we really need is better data on birth outcomes and infant size in hunter-gatherer populations whose lifestyles are probably a better reflection on the conditions we evolved to deal with that's a dissertation for someone else And this work concludes by saying, we don't know the answers and someone else will need to pick up the baton. And as of sitting here today, nobody has picked up that baton and nobody is able to clearly explain why the phenomenon of human reproduction and childbirth operates the way that it does. But we we believe the Bible is clear about this. Language is another really interesting one to consider there was a point in time the bible records for us where people spoke one language and the ability to all speak one language brought about a greater degree of harmony and social cohesion uh, than we see today in the world that's what having a common language enables people to do they can so comfortably communicate with each other and god said that he was going to confound a language verse seven that we have got in the overhead there that they may not understand one another's speech and so the bible lets us the bible lets us know that god was very clear that he knew that such is the limitation of humankind that the ability to not speak the same language would cause massive division significant mistrust and make it so hard for different nations to tr- truly work together. He knew that that would stop um, the 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 way that they were living together, which was increasing and abounding in sin. And Acts chapter seventeen, the apostle Paul is very clear to say that all people have been made by God, and that God has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So the way the earth is constructed the nation states as we have them the way that peoples are set apart one from another is something that the god that god has done but language is is profound in its impact now um the conversation um magazine was talking about this in 2017 and the conversation is um you know has has high journalistic um, provenance it's you know it's very well respected and they were considering why do human beings speak so many languages and we saw it earlier in the Wycliffe uh, slide didn't we 2600 ongoing works to translate the bible how can there be so many thousands of languages and more than that one of the confounding things is is that evolution does not account for language and it's interesting to understand that in terms of the fields of science or philosophy uh, or uh, anthropology, nobody has any understanding of why humans speak the array of languages that they do. Because one of the challenges with, with, with language is that they haven't evolved. There is no common foundation of grammatical rules that can be applied and then languages have been built and developed and, and improved from there. Languages often take um, com- confounding or com- conflicting principles rules that come combat things from the opposite angle and so that's why it can be so difficult that when you've got for, for example um, like people in from Iran showing an interest in, in the Bible in this country at the moment it's so difficult trying to uh, learn the same language as them because Uh, Or or for them to learn our language because they they aren't based on the same rules. Very, very difficult. And there's no answer to it. Nobody understands why. Uh, It concludes the article, some ideas but little evidence. And if you ever want to Google that in your own time or look it up yourself, you'll see that for all of the advanced thinking in this world, nobody knows why we all speak different languages. But the Bible is very clear. On why that's happened. And we believe the Bible is clear that there will one day be a common language once more. At the next point, we'll look at is distribution. This is simply about how the Bible has come to be, you know, the best-selling book that it is. 3.9 billion copies sold in the last 50 years. How is it that God's purpose has come to be known? Because when we think about it, it's very difficult to rationalize Jesus. Two thousand years ago, give or take, had a failed ministry in Israel. He was from a part of Israel with his disciples that lacked connections. They lacked political clout. They were derided and it failed. Jesus was killed as the head of that emerging Breakaway religion from the law of Moses, which was the prevailing religion for the Jews at that time, this was a failed movement on the surface. But the Bible tells us that that wasn't what happened. It tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead. It told us that Jesus ascended to the right hand of his Father and he orchestrated the affairs of the apostles and the affairs of the nations as we now see them in the world taking place. That's his job as God, God has employed him to do. And it's very difficult to, to think of an explanation for how the Bible has taken root in the hearts and minds of men without applying the, role of Je- the ongoing role of Jesus and the angels to that. Because not only did Jesus' mission fail, humanly speaking, because he died and because the powers that be did everything they could to silence him, but the populations of the places were so small. Nazareth, 200 to 1,000. Capernaum, where Jesus spent most of his time when he was preaching the Bible. Less than you know five one 1,500 people. These places are tiny, tiny. And the means for communication, no efficient means of writing, no telephones, no internet, no social media, none of the ways in which stories can be gotten across quickly to masses of people existed at the time of jesus and so i do think it is important to ask the question how is it that the actions of this man in a failed mission because he was put to death how have they been so transcended beyond that time why is it that our society? essentially governs around the two most important times of the year, Easter and Christmas? Why is the delineation of human history revolving around before Jesus was born and after he was born? These are important things to think about because can you conceive of anybody today, even with the power of social media, coming up with some idea that would still be profoundly living in 2,000 years time and that people dedicate their lives to it. I don't believe that could happen, but this happened 2,000 years ago. And it did so on a much smaller scale. The United Nations um, and it's the most robust data that exists in the world here. The United Nations data set has an estimate that at the time Jesus was born, the world population was 300 million. Whereas today it's broadly getting on for 8 billion. So 300 million people, that's estimated to be 0.6% of people that have ever lived. And that message has been carried forth to our day. I just think it's very difficult to believe that it could happen. without God's intervention. And then we look at ourselves as human beings, a human spiritual capacity. We are not like the animals. The Bible is very clear. We're made of the same stuff as as the animals. The Hebrew word is nephesh, a living, breathing creature. And for that, it doesn't matter whether you're a human or whether you're a dog. You're made of essentially the same stuff and you're made of a matter that will die and everything dies but God set humans above animals he gave them dominion or rulership over the animals and that's what we see we're nothing like the animals in terms of our capability and our capacity And we've got the quote there from Romans 8 verse 6 to be carnally minded is death to be spiritually minded is life and peace only humans have the capability of being spiritually minded and more than that Spiritual mindedness is linked to mental health. And so um, there's been a lot of research in this in in recent years in particular. Um, This is from 2016. um, But you can read on the left hand side there that Dr. Corner said depression is the most common mental health problem in the UK. It's been the focus of much research. The evidence shows a positive association between church attendance and lower levels of depression amongst adults, children and young people. It shows belief in a transcendent being, God, is associated with reduced depressive symptoms. And the Mental Health Foundation took uh, the findings of the research that had been taken And those bullet points you can see on the right hand side were made by the Mental Health Foundation recommending that the NHS adopt them as part of their process for when people engage with the NHS because of mental health. And the NHS have adopted all of those. So if you engage with the NHS because you have depression, those should be a part of the offering that NHS provide you with. And it's seen cerebrally as well. The human brain is, is clearly a phenomenal organ. Um, but you can see from the two diagrams there, one is predominantly green and one is predominantly purple. Now, all this is doing, this is showing the part of the brain that, that animals typically don't have. This is a cerebral cortex, the higher functioning part of the brain. It, it's the part of the brain that enables us to think and to reason. And provided we've got a stable lower brain, um, what's often called the mammalian or the lizard brain, um, then we can access our higher thinking. Uh, And what it's showing us quite simply is that there is a correlation between being spiritual and the thickness of the cerebral cortex. The cortical thickness of the brain is linked to that from what all of the scientific research is showing. And so from what's been studied, um, and and this is over 10 years ago now, those that um, had higher incidence of reading the Bible or attending church, they had higher or or a thicker cortical layer, which is shown in the green. And those that were more likely to experience incidents of depression, Um, had more what we can see in the purple color, which indicates a thinner cortical layer. So it's a really fascinating thing to contemplate that, and I'll read that by by Dr. Deans there, um, that the research, the individuals who reported they were highly spiritual or religious, were far more likely to have a thicker brain cortex than those who reported themselves to be non-spiritual. So it's a fascinating thing to consider that to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And it appears to be reflected directly in the way that God has created our brains. And we live in a country, you remember the opening slides, fewer people engage with religion, fewer people know the Bible, fewer people attend a church church. And hand in hand with that, again, this is a seven year iteration, the 2021 figures, this is, these are direct from the NHS, the 2021 figures haven't yet been published because of the pandemic, but we can see, you know, between seven and 14, the significant increase in the number of people experiencing a common mental health problem receiving treatment. It's showing there that a third of the population in 2014 had experienced a problem with this. Those are phenomenal figures, and we'd suggest it goes hand in hand with a less spiritual and less God-focused country. So, the sum of all of this, we've looked at a few things. The Bible is unique as a publication. There's no other book that can be compared with the characteristics of the Bible, the Jews are unique as a nation. The Bible in some ways is the story of the Jews and they were left few in number over the centuries with a land that was totally desolate until they returned back to it. And even the very way that we're born through childbirth is spoken of in the Bible, that it would be difficult, that life and loss of life would be associated with it because it would be teaching about the life, the godly life, the godly seed that is needed to provide salvation. That the languages that humans speak that confuses and makes it difficult for man to live side by side with his neighbour is God input into the human experience. It's not something that's evolved and there are no answers as to why it should be as it is. We then looked at how the Bible and the purpose of the gospel message How has that been spread across the world? How is it known? How is it understood? How is it still a living thing? How is it that I'm sitting here talking to you about it today, given its paltry start in those far off days? We as humans are created to be spiritual, to be aligned with our God, to read his word. There's no guarantee that we won't suffer from depression. Happiness is not something so much that that God is concerned with for anybody in this dispensation of time. Rather, what we're told is that if we read the Bible, we have a very strong chance of finding contentment in resting in the hope of the promises given to a man called Abraham a long time ago. And so God's not willing that any should perish. He asks that we should all seek after him. But we have to do some of the effort, but he's not far from any one of us, says Paul in Acts 17. Ecclesiastes 9, none of us know our time. None of us know our last day. And so the Bible encourages us to number our days, to apply our hearts to wisdom. And then this is a question for all of us to think about our own lives and our relationship with God. Isaiah 42, verse 23. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? And God's given us all the blessing that we have the opportunity to answer that question, depending on how we're going to answer it with whatever amount of time he's given us. But he does care. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope.